0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for. And sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Maggie Takuda-Hall has an MFA in Creative Writing from USF and a strong cake decorating game. She is the author of the 2017 Parents' Choice Gold Medal-winning picture book, also an octopus, illustrated by Benji Davies. Personal note here, we have an autographed copy of that book sitting on our shelf right now. The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea is her debut young adult novel, which was an NPR, Kirkus, School Library Journal, and Book Page Best Book of 2020. Her graphic novel, Squad, is an Ignite and Locus Award-nominated comic book And her newest picture book, Love in the Library, has received starred reviews from BookPage, School Library Journal, BookList, and Publishers Weekly. She lives in Oakland with her husband, son, and objectively perfect dog. Here's my conversation with Maggie. Hello, Maggie. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Julie. I am thrilled. I have to tell you that I have a copy of Also an Octopus that's signed by you. (laughs) Aww. In our cabinet of picture books, because you did a visit to the elementary school where my boys were, and then I'm the librarian at that elementary school now. But oh my goodness, yeah, it was so fun because I remember they brought it home and we read it together, and I was like, This is a great book! I love Aww. that book and still read it aloud. It's such a good mentor text, especially for those younger sets. So I Thank I really enjoyed that one. So you were on my list and were sort of neighbors. So, so many <laughs> things to talk about today. You have lots of different projects. So I'm so happy you're here to chat today.
0: I'm so glad to be invited. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's start with, well, I want to start with your podcast if I may, because <laughs> I have to say that when I was researching you, I listened to a bunch of the episodes and I have to recommend to everyone that they listen to the one on The Martian, which had me howling with laughter. (laughs) I was crying because the whole realization also that Matt Damon, somehow his agent is putting him all these projects where he's in peril and everybody has to save him. How
0: many times are we going to save Matt Damon?
1: (laughs) It was amazing. So how did you guys get started on that podcast? How did you get connected?
0: So the podcast is called Failure to Adapt, and it's a show that is about um, adaptations, like books to movies, um, books to TV shows. And um, Red Scott, who is my co-host, is the host of a Game of Thrones podcast that turned into like a general TV podcast that I'd been a guest on a lot just because I really enjoy chatting with him and his co-host, Ivan. Yeah, And I came up with the idea for failure to adapt after rewatching Jurassic Park and reading the book for the first time. Oh, wow. And I was like, whoa, I, I've loved this movie for so long. And this book is wild and yet somehow exactly the same. And I hate it. So it's wild. <laughs> yeah. And Red was the first person I thought about doing the show with because I just love chatting with him. And we have such different perspectives on what makes a story good and you know, our feelings about how movies are made in general. And so um, it's just been really fun. So we just finished the second season of it and we're going to start the third season. But, you know, if you like things like The Princess Bride, we have the actor who played Prince Humperdinck on as a guest for that episode. Uh, For The Hunger Games, we had Amy Schneider, the the big time Jeopardy champ, come on and talk about overnight instant game show fame. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's just been a really, really fun show to make.
1: So moving forward right now, you, your most recent book is love in the library mm-hmm. and tell me about how that came about. I have it here and it's a, it's just a really well done book. So do you want to give uh, listeners just kind of a background on how, Absolutely. how you decided to write that one?
0: So Love in the library is a picture book illustrated by Yazi Mamora Um It is the true story of how my grandparents met in a Japanese incarceration camp during World War II, where my grandmother was the camp librarian of Minidoka. And every day, my grandfather would come in and check out like a bajillion books. He had zero intention of reading, so he could go stare and flirt with her. (laughs) Um, And they fell in love, and they got married, and they had their first child in Minidoka. Um, And it's a picture book. So it is for younger kids. Like I Mm -hmm. recommend it for first grade and up. I think that's about right. Mm -hmm. It's true. The way that I've been saying, it's like Truman Capote true, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is that the story beats are all a hundred percent true. Right. But the dialogue is imagined. Um, Both Tama and George have passed away. Mm -hmm. George passed away when I was only like one year old. Like I never really got to know him. And Tama passed away uh, just a few years ago, 2015, 2016, I think. Um, And so I got a lot of time with Tama and I got to know her really well. And so the book is written from her perspective. And the last line of the book, the miracle is in all of us as long as we believe in change, in beauty, and in hope, are her words taken from her journal that she kept while she was in Minidoka. And so it was very... It felt really wonderful to me to get to close the book with her words
1: uh, That instead of mine. That is beautiful. It is beautifully done. And it's a great read aloud. Like you said, it's intended for younger children. But there's so much here that can be built upon, too, if people want to have discussions around it. And I loved the language in it, I, the illustrations. It's a really brilliant book. And I also appreciated your note in the back as well so you kind of have that perspective there
0: ah, the note that i get angry
1: letters about <laughs> oh what a delight of being an author ooh um what are people not happy about may i ask like is yeah or, so I mean, in we don't the have note, to bring up source points um uh, no i'm super i'm happy to talk about
0: it i put it in print cuz i stand by it
1: yes uh, <laughs> yeah i'm curious yeah. what people would object to there
0: Mm, people do not like it when you call the United States racist. Mm, um, and gosh. so a thing that I said in the author's note, the number one thing that I get really, uh, angry letters about pretty frequently is that I said, hate is not a virus. Hate is an American tradition, mm-hmm. which to me is just objectively true. Like if you look at our history, what happened to my grandparents is not an aberration. It's not like a singular moment where the U S government made a wild racist decision, It is part of a pattern of marginalizing people uh, based on race. And Mm -hmm. so to me, it was really important. And it is very important when I talk to kids about this to be very clear that this is not a conversation that is over and it's not a thing that doesn't happen anymore. And people really do not like that. Mm -hmm. They are fine with me telling the story of my grandparents falling in love like right. everyone likes a love story. Of course. But in any way, trying to connect it to a larger history is very offensive to a lot of people. Um, so I get a lot of like you're just bitter, you should be grateful. If they hadn't been incarcerated, you wouldn't have been born. Oh my. Oh dear. <laughs> uh like kind okay. of things. Um, and I never respond because that's just not I don't need to spend my time on no, that. No, um, indeed. But, you know, and similarly, even when I'm invited places, I have been getting a lot of pushback on the presentation I give with this book okay. because I'm very clear, especially in the presentation for ages like second and third grade and up, mm-hmm. that this isn't over. And in fact, you can just look to our borders as a way to understand the way that we still incarcerate families, children, mm-hmm. babies, for the crime of being a certain race, of being from a certain place. And that's the number one thing that people, get very mad at me for telling children. And they say things like, we weren't ready to have that conversation. They're too young for this. This is not relevant. The first couple of times it happened, I felt really badly. And I apologized because I was like, Oh, maybe I'm, I'm coming in too strong. And then the more I thought about it, the more I've kind of hardened in my position that I will absolutely be telling this. Mm -hmm. And that is just sort of part of the price of having me come to your school. Uh, you will pay me. And also
1: I will tell your children this truth. (laughs) Um, There are multiple prices here. (laughs) Yeah, there are
0: multiple prices. It's a a tiered (laughs) pricing system. And and it was because I realized the only schools where I was getting this feedback from were invariably white private schools, Mm. schools where the kids had the privilege of not knowing about these things because it didn't affect their community. right? And I am completely unwilling to coddle white children. I know that this story in general is not too much for young children because I've known this story for my entire life.
1: Right. And it has
0: shaped my understanding of the world and of our country in a much more honest way. Mm -hmm. And I am unwilling to participate in perpetuating the privilege of white children's
1: ignorance. The book does such a good job of showing a beautiful story, but you're right. To take it out of that larger context is to do it a disservice. And so... I think that makes total sense that you would want to do that. And this whole conversation around not being ready to have conversations and not making children uncomfortable is is really one that seems to be coming up a lot. And it feels very, like, just a kind of thin veil of an excuse. I mean, I understand nobody wants to talk about unpleasant things with their children, but unfortunately that's part of the parent gig.
0: Well, and also... If you don't want to talk about them, then send them to school.
1: It's so true.
0: Like, okay, you are uncomfortable. I'm yeah. sorry that you are a coward. <laughs> but also,
1: <laughs> like, I wrote you this note
0: with a heart. Yeah, but also being like, I'm uncomfortable talking about this. Therefore, it should not be discussed at all in schools is a wild tack. If mm-hmm. anything, you should be grateful that somebody is starting that conversation so that you, the parent who was thinks it's too much to tell your kids that gay parents exist or that racist policies exist or whatever right, it is. Right. Cause this is clearly part of like a larger cultural movement, you know, that the, this conversation is starting somewhere else so that you can just kind of pick it up from there. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, well, what did they say? Well, here's what I think. And like, yada, yada, yada. There's like a lot of ways that this is actually taking the burden off of you as a parent. Uh, this is just a tool. And yes. so I don't know. I
1: have very little sympathy
0: or patience for that argument.
1: Well, and that's part of the tiered pricing system. Maybe you need to start fining, right? For, um, I will come to your school, but if I get a number of letters afterward, I'm, I'm going to fine you. (laughs) Please prep your parents ahead of time. This
0: is a hundred dollars per thing in my (laughs) inbox. (laughs) For your older kids, like fourth and fifth grade, I highly recommend We Hereby Refuse, which is a graphic novel that is just about the history of Japanese people who protested and resisted incarceration. Okay. Uh, Because that's something I get asked about a lot from, I've noticed particularly schools that are predominantly kids of color during Q&A, they're like, well, who said no? And I'm like- I hope
1: you become president.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Write your name here. <laughs> in, in that graphic novel, it's like a solid start because that's one of the you know important parts of this history is that not all Japanese-Americans went along with this kindly Truly, right. Lake existed. There was absolutely a history of resistance within this. And that is one of the lesser told stories of Japanese mm. incarceration. I think largely we're told as obedient, you know, and you know my grandparents were obedient they did as they were told because they were afraid they would get killed if they didn't right but there were people who put their lives on the line and really fought back
1: wow i will be looking that up you said it's called we hereby refuse
0: mm-hmm. okay
1: perfect i'll put that on my list and see about that for yeah it's so important for that story that's something that i wouldn't have thought was missing from that narrative. So that just shows my own blind spot there. So I'm excited to read that. I
0: you know, it, it was one that I didn't even really have illuminated for me until I started doing these school visits because my mm. family was one of the families that just kind of went along. And my, I know my Grant George was really angry about incarceration. He saved all the paperwork from everything that he lost just in case anyone ever cared enough to look into it. Like no one did. Um, but like, yeah. You know, Tama was very zen about it. And I remember when I was writing early drafts of Love in the Library, I showed them to my mom to kind of character check them and make sure that they were accurate. Yeah. And she was like, this is too angry. Like, she wasn't angry like this. She was just scared. Hmm. It was a different feeling. Like, the feeling is wrong. And so I had to kind of save all of my anger and put it into the author's note because uh, <laughs> I was projecting something that I felt that was not exactly how she dealt with it emotionally. She was one of the like, there's nothing can be done about this type of people.
1: That's so fascinating to think about, you know, because you have this this situation that's happening and then combined with this each individual approach to it. So you're right. I mean, the idea that you would be just like you said, a Zen approach to that. I I mean, I get annoyed when the stoplight doesn't turn for me. So I wonder. Oh,
0: my God. The things <laughs> like, that make me angry. <laughs>
1: Every time I hear something like that, like she's very zen, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure that's how people talk about me. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially my children. I'm sure they're mm. like, oh yeah, my mom, super calm. Let's switch gears. I wanted to talk a little bit about The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea. Mm. And is that, forgive me, this is your first YA, right? Or did yeah, you have that's my one? first novel. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I, I'm glad. Tore through it. Um, I'm giving it to the woman who waxes my eyebrows next because I was telling her that I, <laughs> uh, I just told her the title and she said I was in on mermaids and witches. So bring it over here. But, <laughs> <laughs> these are the kind of deep conversations it's all on we the have. Tin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. But I really, it was. I know the blurb on the front uh, talked about might remind you why you fell in love with the advent with adventure in the first place, and it really is. An adventure oh, book. I felt like it was so well woven and I really enjoyed the read, but also kind of the way that it evolved and the characters evolved. So you did a brilliant job. How'd you come up with the idea for it? <laughs>
0: I worked on The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea for like eight years. Really? Um, Yeah. So I was an independent bookseller for a very, very long time Okay. for Books, Inc. And I started at the Chestnut Street store in the marina in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I met a girl named Claire. I met her when she was like nine years old and she was like painfully shy, but she would come in every weekend with one of her parents and they would buy her a book and uh she would read it. Like she would be done with it by the time we saw each other the next week. Yeah. And so I got to know her kind of slowly that way. But her parents did most of the talking for her until one day when she was like eleven, mm-hmm. she came in and was like, Do you like Pokemon? And I was like, Oh my God, she talks <laughs> <laughs> And like all of a sudden we were friends. And when she was about twelve, her parents hired me to be her creative writing tutor. And so I would see her once a week and we would do writing exercises together and we would talk and um you know, it was pretty clear to me as a young person that she was queer and just didn't have the language for it yet. Okay. And so she loved fantasy books. She loved books with like magic and rules and murder and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there, at the time, because this was so long ago, there just wasn't a lot of queer fantasy. Or if there were queer relationships, they were secondary and one of them got killed. And so I started writing The Mermaid, The Witch, in the Sea for her. So it really started with Flora and Evelyn's romance. Mm-hmm. Like that was the core, but everything else about it changed wildly over the time that it took me to draft it. I started it in so many fits and like false goes, mm-hmm. uh, cause I was working super like beyond full-time. I had like three jobs at certain points while oh I was writing gosh. that book. And, um, it wasn't until I quit Entirely uh, working okay. and I started traveling with my husband. We spent like a year and a half traveling through South America mm-hmm. uh, in like a Toyota Forerunner. We did this like very extended road trip. Wow. That I wrote the entire first draft in one go because I'd just been rewriting the first like 25,000, 30,000 words over, mm-hmm. and over and over and over and over and over again. And I learned very much the hard way that a perfect staircase that goes nowhere is fucking useless. Excuse me. I forgot to ask if I
1: continue. (laughs) A perfect staircase that goes nowhere. What a
0: perfect perfect description. Yeah. Um, And so I learned very, very, very much the hard way that you have to be going somewhere. And so even a terrible first draft that has an ending is more valuable than the most polished beginning with nothing to answer it. Mm. So I trashed two thirds of that draft within a month of writing it. I wrote okay. it during NaNoWriMo 2016. I spent that December and January, February, and February, I think rewriting it entirely almost. Okay. And the rewrite is what I sent to my agent, which is what she sent out, which is pretty close to what got published. I definitely had to do some edits with her and with my editor to clarify things because there's so many threads. So many Um, threads. Many, many threads. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, that is that is a really, gosh, that has so much wisdom for writers just in that one story that you're telling. (laughs) I mean, that idea of perseverance and you have this sort of simmering on the back burner. But yeah, you can tell though, because I wrote on the front on my sticky note when I was thinking about this book, I I wrote woven, not just woven perspectives, Mm. but I mean, it is intricate. Like... I think so many pieces from the end or, you know, later in the book that you come back to. And I think, oh, and the way you did it is uh, just thank you. really so hard to brilliant. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, well, that's what I was thinking. I would read it and go, oh my goodness. And also you're in between the interludes. I mean, the way that you did it, it was, it's really well done. Done. what are you working on now if you don't mind my asking Well I
0: just finished the edits on the sequel to Mermaid The Witch in the Sea you did not I, I did, did not know that that's so exciting yeah I did not know that when I finished the Mermaid The Witch in the Sea so sort of a funny thing about that book yeah is I had always pitched it as having a sequel but okay. they wouldn't confirm it until it had sold well enough basically or you know done well enough by their standards to give me a sequel. And so I had to walk this weird line of like, oh, it has to end happily ever after for Flora and Evelyn, Like a spoiler alert. But like, that's like the whole thing with this <laughs> yes. book is I promise I'm not going to hurt your feelings with the <laughs> queer love story. And I <laughs> like, appreciate that. You're in you're in safe hands. <laughs> yes. Go on a big high stakes adventure, but I promise they end up together and they end up happily ever after just as they deserve while still leaving room for this much larger story that I knew I wanted to tell. And so... um you know, that was really difficult because I didn't know writing with that kind of uncertainty is not great for the old confidence, but it's also (laughs) just like a difficult craft thing to pull off. Yeah. And I hope it's, it's worked. And I think the amount of people who are very surprised that there's a sequel to me is like a compliment of like, oh yeah, you thought it was a done book. Good. Yes, It it almost had to be.
1: (laughs) Right.
0: Yes. But the sequel picks up where the first book leaves off with Genevieve on the red shore. When she washes up on this, um, what she thinks is going to be an inhospitable place.
1: Yes. Um, and
0: she's a main character. Alfie is a main character. Keiko, uh, Evelyn's uh, ladies maid comes back. The pirate Supreme and Zenobia are main characters. You get to know them much better and their history with one another. Um, But there's also completely new people that I had a real joy writing. Um, And I think because I had worked so hard and for so long on The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea and learned so many lessons the hard way, Mm -hmm. the second book was much more of a pleasure to write. And it went a lot faster, but just like a lot more confidently as well. And so I hope that it still gives readers that sense of many, many threads that all come together in this way, in the end, uh, to give you that satisfaction of, you know, commonality between people who seem like they have nothing in common. And while the mermaid, the witch and sea is so focused on romantic love. Mm -hmm. I tried to focus the second book on all the other kinds of love that exist Mm. between friends, between mother and daughter, between nation and person between, you know, a person in their community there's just a lot of different ways that love comes up. Uh, there's still romantic love, but it's more complicated than first love. It's like love that went wrong trying to correct itself.
1: Mm. <laughs> um,
0: and so Amazing. Evelyn and Flora and uh, will still be there, but they play a much quieter role and their lives are mostly very comfortable now because that's what they've earned and that's what they deserve.
1: I was just thinking, well, that's what they deserve. So yeah, that's, <laughs> I haven't they been through enough. Uh, I would think so. Yeah. There were times when I was reading this and I was like, oh my gosh, no, this is not going well for them. <laughs> yeah. No, it was so beautifully written. Well, I am super psyched to read the sequel. So when will that be released? Do you have a date All on
0: 2023, that? 2023. It's, um, we're waiting. It was going to be spring 2023, but we are waiting for the same cover artist, Victo Nagai, to do the cover again because she's incredible. Oh. Uh, and I think it was worth any wait
1: <laughs> to get in her queue. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That will make a big difference, too, because the cover art on this is outstanding.
0: Oh, the cover art. I'm sorry. I'm proud of the book. That's fine. Whatever. I don't mean to <laughs> cast aspersions on myself or unsell the book. Sure. But the cover is incredible.
1: <laughs> It is incredible. I, and there's so much detail to it. Every time I look at it, I feel like I notice a new facet of it. It's, it's really she, like, stunning. I actually
0: read the book, which I think is wild. Cause if I was a cover artist and I heard the title, The Mermaid, The Witch and the Sea,
1: it would have been like, a lot more basic. Yeah. I'm all set here, guys. I don't yeah, need anything tale, else. Mermaid Tail, Ocean. Boom. Boom.
0: Magic sparkles. Yeah.
1: I earned my commission in 10 minutes. Here I go. Yes. Yeah. Magic sparkles. Uh, Fairy so dust. Done. I, her
0: work is incredible. And I don't know if you follow her career at all, but she's also been doing the Rick Riordan, the new covers for the Percy Jackson
1: series. Oh, I do not. I will have to follow up on that.
0: There incredible. I mean, she is so talented. She's one of those people everyone should follow on Instagram and okay. on Twitter because when she posts art pictures, it's always like the best moment in your feed. Oh, yes. Um, anyway, I can't talk highly enough about her. It's she is so cool and I was just like so prepared not to have her again because yeah. her career absolutely exploded. She was already like a big deal in cover art. Okay. But it like really exploded in the time since The Mermaid, The Witch in the Sea was published, and she had time to fit me in. So I was right. I'm very emotionally ready to be like, well, somebody's going to do their best beaked impression. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and
0: so I, I'm like over the moon. I'm so, so oh. grateful. So that's really exciting.
1: I'm so happy for you. That's really thrilling. And it'll bring a nice, I mean, they'll just look so happy together. The books will. I mean, I'm excited. how could they not?
0: She's I, so good.
1: <laughs> I can't wait. That's so thrilling. Well, good. So fall 2023 for that one. And we will all mm-hmm. start following her on Instagram. I have just one more question for you. What do you, what's your favorite thing about being an author? What do you love about what you do?
0: Oh my God. I have the dream job. I just sit yeah. around and make, stuff up and then people give me money. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's insane. That shouldn't be allowed. Like that's like so (laughs) frivolous. Uh, I have long maintained that you need to have a personality defect in order to be an author because you're basically a person who said like the things I made up are so important. You should <laughs> give me money for them, which is a deranged opinion to have about yourself in the world. <laughs> um, and so I am very grateful that I have been allowed to do this, that, you know, I have had any kind of success and I'm really grateful. I have a very, very supportive partner. And yeah. so, um, when we came back from traveling, I immediately was like, okay, well, I'm going to see what job openings are at Apple. And he was like, you know, uh, maybe not. Like you spent the whole trip talking about, like, you're going to be a writer, you're going to be a writer. Why don't you do that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, you know, I wouldn't have had the confidence and I certainly wouldn't have had the finance to, to make this possible. I think it's always worth admitting or acknowledging if you are a person whose art career is subsidized by a partner with a much more lucrative career than your own. And I am certainly one of those people. Um, and so I'm very, very grateful, you know, that he has a lucrative skill (laughs) set, but also that he is a person who was very inclined to be Very, very supportive, and who it sounds so trite, but like really believed in me when I did not. Cause I was like, well, no, like you always have to have a job. And he's like,
1: do you remember how long it took you to write with the job? Why don't you try without, see how it goes? (laughs) It's always so good to have someone in your life that's like, let me just gently point out the flaws in your insane thinking.
0: Yeah. And he was like, you know, It's very sweet. I don't think it'll ever work out this way. But he's like, who knows? Maybe one day you become so successful, I don't have to work anymore. And I was like,
1: (laughs) (laughs) you crazy guy.
0: I know, you crazy kid.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. Well, that's my husband's dream for sure for me to become wildly wealthy so he doesn't have to work. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But hey, we should both start writing smut. Yes. That's where the money is. That needs to be the new approach. Okay. I'm going to write myself a note later. Work yeah. on smut. Yeah. It'll be great.
0: Smut only. That comes out like once a week.
1: Yes. Yes. You, know? you really have to turn and burn. I feel like. Oh yeah. If you you got to be a
0: one woman business. I'm not yes. saying it's an easy life.
1: <laughs> oh no. You're right. It wouldn't, <laughs> to- it would be great for my husband, but yeah, I don't know that that path is going to be very creatively fulfilling for me or you.
0: If I thought I could do it, I would because Mm. I don't have any dislike of erotica and the women I've met who do make very handsome livings that way are so smart and so cool. I am so intimidated by them. I genuinely just don't have the chops to do it. I can't write that fast. I um, am not that good at branding or at the business side of things. And you have to be good at all of that stuff because you're doing it all yourself.
1: Very much so. These women
0: are business women who also can write at like these furious paces. And I just, I genuinely can't keep up. If I could keep up, I would do it. Like, just like I would be a professional baseball player if I could (laughs) do it.
1: (laughs) One million percent. Yes. Mm -hmm. If I could be Yes. Gosh, professional baseball player. That really would be also lucrative. My kids talk about that all the time. Like
0: just saying, like yeah. if I could do it, if that was the job that I could do, I would yeah. take that job. Yes. But let's be honest. I cannot do that <laughs> job.
1: <laughs> we all need to know our limits, everyone. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I am so glad that you have the personality defect that allows you to be an author <laughs> because I think you are very, talented. And I think your writing is really inspirational on lots of different levels. And I loved in Mermaid, the Witch and the Sea, it was in one of the earlier parts, but a line, uh, know your truth, not your story. And some of the things that you share really do. You have stories that really provide and introduce truth. So they're, they're very beautiful.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. I'll okay, call on you the next time I'm feeling crappy.
1: I will. I will happily take that call. I won't decline you. Um, I, I only do that to the dentist. Actually, currently they're chasing me down. I'm trying to ghost them, but they won't. They just can't quit me. I guess mm. I don't know. They want to clean my teeth, and I'm like, no, I don't want to come. Okay, I don't I feel want you. to. I feel yeah, that. it's horrible. Okay, so since this is Ask a Librarian, we will close. Do you have a question for me?
0: Yeah. Um, I have been seeing a lot of conversation, obviously, around book banning online, um, but specifically about ALA's response to book banning. And it's kind of lukewarm, like we just, we're a neutral organization. If that means carrying books that deny the Holocaust, we will do that. Right. uh, In the effort to be neutral. And I have seen a lot of uh, on-the-ground librarians just Furious about that because on some level, aren't and I wonder how you feel about this, aren't librarians supposed to direct people toward the best possible resources, not just everything that exists? Like isn't the idea that you would help people find truths not just function like a Google search engine? Yes.
1: I so just so everyone that's listening knows, I do not have a degree in library science. So a lot of librarians have their masters and some are members of the American Library Association. I am not. So this is just my opinion on it and from what I've seen and heard and listened to. So I think that the main issue is sometimes we succumb to the slippery slope argument, right? Where People don't want to make a decision because they're fearing 20 decisions down the road, what that might mean. As opposed to, no, this is the right decision to make today because it's the right decision. And then we evaluate the next decision to avoid that sort of thoughtless slide. So I understand the neutrality and I understand the argument for it. However, I agree with you that librarians, especially, are really well trained in evaluation of sources that's part of their mm-hmm. job so yeah to to pass that on to to sort of abdicate that side of the responsibility and say well i don't need to evaluate that source i think that itself presents more danger unless there's a system in which those books that are housed are you know almost Genrefied or put in a different category where it's uh, this has been self-published material or this isn't verified or I don't know how they would handle that. I mean, every library would have to do it differently, I'm sure, based on their collection and the curation of that. But I agree with you that I don't like the stance that's just like, well, we carry everything. Because that feels like maybe the not the easy path, but the path of least resistance, perhaps.
0: And also a disingenuous argument, right? Because librarians yes. make decisions all the time about what books to keep on the shelves. My understanding Correct. is that one of the greatest burdens of being a librarian is constantly evaluating your own collection and getting rid of stuff.
1: Yes. Weeding is a very challenging exercise because you do, you are judging. There's a an acronym that's used called musty. You have to or they co- talk yeah musty it's amazing What an unappealing word I know but it's it's the books you need yeah. to get rid of if they're you know I can't remember exactly what they all are share it but one of them is um that if it's useless like if it just doesn't fit your collection anymore which is totally a judgment call so yeah. i think so many subjective decisions are being made so it feels like percent. such a
0: silly thing to then pretend as though that subjectivity doesn't exist and can't exist.
1: Correct. And especially even in acquisition. I mean, that's the thing is you're not, no library is getting a copy of every book that's published. So you're right. The idea that it's neutrality. I mean, yeah, we can have the Library of Congress with a book that's published, every book that's published or, you know, a catalog of those. But in terms of everyday libraries, I think it is, it, it does feel irresponsible to sort of step away and just say, well, I guess it's everybody else's problem to decide. So I would yeah. I would tend to agree with you. And I will be looking more into that. I'm glad you mentioned it. It's a good question. Thanks. Hey. Well, Maggie, uh, thanks so much for this time. This has been very, just really fun for me. I'm so glad that you're a writer and thanks for talking with me. And I loved hearing your opinions. And I can't wait to read Love in the Library to my students and see where they go with it.
0: Oh, I'm glad. Well, let me know if they have any questions, and thanks so much for having me.
1: Maybe you should come to our school, and I will let everyone know that they're not allowed to send you unkind letters.
0: (laughs) You don't have to. I'll say all mail comes through me.
1: No, I appreciate it. it. I
0: won't find you. Yeah. (laughs) Oh,
1: okay. That feels like a fair compromise, right? It won't be a hundred dollars per. Well, thanks so much for the time today. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at words, or you can go to my website, JulieWritesWords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book.